Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 831 with Elizabeth Heron. If you have multiple projects, you are juggling, managing, feeling some overwhelm and challenge, well, Elizabeth's got some pro tips for you here. She literally wrote the book on managing multiple projects. So you'll learn one, the easiest way to make managing multiple projects manageable. Two, how to ensure follow through when you're not the manager. And three, how to strike the right balance between the triple constraint of time, cost, and quality. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please pay us a visit over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP831. We've got a lot of cool goodies for you. And if you're new, I recommend you check out the very first episodes at the top of the feed, episode 000 and ABCDEF. If you sort by earliest episodes, check those out to get a taste for what all we've got. Welcome. It's great to have you. I hope you stick around for years and years. And here is the story about Elizabeth. Elizabeth Heron teaches people how to juggle multiple projects so they can meet stakeholders' expectations without working extra hours. She is a project management practitioner, trainer, mentor, and founder of rebelsguidetopm.com. An author of seven project management books, Elizabeth prides herself on her straight-talking, real-world advice for project managers. She uses her 20 years experience doing the job to help people deliver better quality results while ditching the burnout through her community membership program called Project Management Rebels. Big thanks to Elizabeth for sharing her wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Elizabeth. Elizabeth, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Hello, thank you for having me on the show. Well, I'm so excited to dig into your wisdom, but first I think we need to hear a little bit about your ritual involving the song Firework. What's the story (laughs) here? Well, when I go live on a video or something like that, I, I feel like I need to get into the zone and having that break between just doing my emails or whatever it was to doing before and focusing on showing up and being present in the moment. I do that with music. So I play a song and I've just got stuck on Katy Perry. <laughs> so so I play that to get into the, the right frame of mind for going live and talking to people. Well, Firework is actually a really fun tune. And I love the metaphor at the beginning. Like, do you ever feel like a plastic bag? <laughs> Absolutely. Drifting around. Isn't that what every project manager feels like at the beginning of a new piece oh. of work? And you have got no idea what you're supposed to be doing. Oh, Elizabeth, you're a master of the segue and tying it together. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I want to hear a little bit about 
Managing Multiple Projects. You've written the book on it. Could you kick us off with a particularly surprising or counterintuitive or extra fascinating discovery you've made when it comes to managing multiple projects? I think one of the things that surprised me was I I did a survey to get some numbers, to get a bit of research for the book. And most people are managing between two and five projects. And that doesn't sound like very many, but having to constantly switch between work does create that overhead and workload is the biggest cause of burnout. So if you can't manage that workload effectively and switch between all the things you're juggling, it can be really quite difficult. And the most surprising thing for me about that survey and the results I got back when I was interviewing people for the book was how sad it is that people are feeling so unhappy about the work that they do. And the verbatim comments were just just shocked me that that people show up to work, they want to do the best that they can, and they're not in environments where they can do that. And I felt that that was something that we need to change in the world because we all need to be happy at work. We could be spend so much time there. It's not worth doing things that we don't enjoy. Well, Elizabeth, that is, that is powerful. And thank you for, for sharing that. It really does connect emotionally in terms of overwhelm, burnout, sadness. When you say verbatim comments, are there a couple that have lodged into your brain and, and haunt you? You could share to tee up just what we might be able to escape here. There was a comment from a woman called Kimberly, and she wrote, I work in a fast food project management environment that expects a sit-down service. And I thought, Mm. don't we all? I mean, so many people must feel that they're in environments where you want to do the best quality work you can. And actually, it's got to be a quick turnaround. There has to be speed and shortcuts. And we have to apply all these hacks just to get through the day because we don't have the time to focus on the people that matter and the work that matters. And so that, that analogy about feeling like you're in a fast food environment, but all your customers and, and the work that you want to be able to deliver, you want to be able to provide this five-star five dining service. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And it, it's really funny. And I have felt both of those work desires. You know, sometimes it is a blast to just shred through a lot of stuff at medium quality and high speed and and just enjoy the thrill ride. Like, woohoo, look at all these things checked off and out the door. That's really cool. And other times you really do want to be, I don't know, sort of like an artisanal craftsmanship, bespoke excellence, maximum beauty, maximum quality. And what's challenging is often you don't get to choose. <laughs> like Exactly. That might be your mood, but what's required is this. And if they require both speed and excellence at the same time, that's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. And people end up working longer hours. That was certainly my experience when I went back to work after maternity leave and was in this situation where I was managing multiple projects myself. My choices were do things less good <laughs> to a less good quality standard or work longer hours. And neither of them really appealed to me in terms of wanting to to be the best professional that I could be and, and do good things in my career. So I had to start rethinking what work meant and how I could work more productively because the tools I had only gave me those two choices and that wasn't good enough. Mm-hmm. Well, that's powerful. And it sounds like some of your thoughts made it into your book, Managing Multiple Projects, colon, how project managers can balance priorities, manage expectations, and increase productivity. If you could give us the key 
thesis or big idea behind the book? What is it? I've put together a five-part model that helps people break down their work, structure it differently, and then keep all their balls in the air. Uh Although the thing I would say is that no book will ever tell you there's a a one-size solution that will fit every need. So it's written very much from a perspective of here's a ton of different tools and techniques that you could try, test them out in your work environment, find what fits your working style. Because everyone's different, aren't they? And everyone's work environment is, is different. But broadly, with a few tweaks, hopefully you can make your workload a bit more manageable. Well, that's that sounds exciting. Can you share with us a case study or a particularly inspiring story example of someone who is able to upgrade their managing multiple projects game to see great results? Yes, I can. Most of the people, I do a lot of mentoring as well. So a lot of the people I talk to will pick and choose a couple of, of different things to apply. I can give you my own example and then I can share some examples from other people. The thing that made the biggest difference for me is the first of those five steps, which is working out what's in your personal portfolio. So what was the totality of my workload? Because I had, you know, three or four projects that I was managing, but also I was mentoring my colleagues. I was organizing events at work. I was having to turn up and deputize for my manager at different meetings and all the other things that never really make it into your mental to-do list because they're the stuff you jot down on a post-it note and you never find the time really to put those on a project schedule or anything. They're just expectations. So when I had a complete picture of all the things I was responsible for, I then got a big shock about how many hours that actually equated to within a week and being able to then have an intelligent conversation with my manager and also to plan my own time, it became a lot easier because I had full visibility. And I think that's something that I know from teaching about managing multiple projects, other people have taken away as well. Just that realisation of all the extra things that we're expected to do, whether it's timesheets or finance reporting or organising a party for the end of the year celebrations, whatever it is, all of those things take time away from us being able to deliver the, the main part of our job, the projects that we're working on. Absolutely. And I'm thinking about mandatory trainings. I'm thinking about assorted exactly. meetings. Yes. I'm thinking about email. Email's tricky because on the one hand, are these emails about your projects? Well, then I guess in a way that that time might get counted or are the emails about everything else, you know, from the CFO and the CEO and the this and that cross-functional group here and there? Yes, team meetings, briefing your colleagues, all that kind of stuff. So that personal portfolio step was really helpful for me. And one of the other things that I talk about in the book is dependency management. So how do you work out how your work interacts with other people's work and how each of your projects interact with each other. And I can I can tell you about Robert who told me that once he'd planned out that those different dependencies between his workload, he felt that he already knew that in his head, but having plotted it out and writing it down in a matrix, he could then use that as a communication tool to help other people in the department understand how their work impacted other people. Mm-hmm. And that was valuable then because he could Use that to help people talk about when does their work need to be done? What's going to happen if it's late? This is the knock-on implications for these people or this team or that project. And they could talk about how they could help each other, make sure all of those expectations were met. Oh, lovely. That is handy. And so it was just like a, a, a schnazzy chart, graph, flow chart, bit of graphical loveliness. You could do it that way. I just wrote it in a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very good at simple things. So the, the spreadsheets 
a list of all my projects, a list of all my other responsibilities, a list of the way that my work interacts with other people's work. And the way that we did the dependency matrix was we had a list of projects down the side and then a list of the same projects across the top. And where they met, we could say, well, does this project have anything to do with that? Does this piece of work have anything to do with that team? And you could write in the box. Yeah. Yes, we need to be aware of this. Or yes, we have to do that before this one. Beautiful. Okay. Well, those are, those are handy right off the bat. And could you share when it comes to managing multiple projects, there are many, there are many books and works and tools and trainings on project management and your corner of the project management universe, managing multiple projects is distinctive. Can you share with us what are some of the key differences, distinctions about the game when you're managing multiple projects versus one super project? I think the biggest challenge for me is having different stakeholders, more stakeholders. If you're managing a a gigantic project and it's taking up all of your workload, then you've probably got quite good relationships with the people that you work with because you're with them every day, working with them every day. The team might be large and I'm not saying there's not a lot of people and relationships to manage, but there's one common goal that you're all working towards, which is delivering the project. And you've probably got experience of working with them on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Now, let's say you're managing four projects as four potentially quite separate different teams, each of who want a piece of you at some point in the week. And you've got to switch between managing their expectations about how important their work is, because not all projects are the same level of importance. Someone has to work on the stuff that's low importance. And it might be that someone wants more of your time than you can actually give because you've got other things to do in your week as well. So I think those relationships are probably the hardest thing and the most different thing about managing multiple strands of work rather than just managing one. And that could be managing four different clients. If you're in a client-facing role, maybe you've got four different clients, maybe you've got four different internal projects, but ultimately the more people you have to work with, the harder I think the job becomes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well then now could you share with us, you mentioned at the very beginning that burnout, sadness, overwhelm stuff. Do you have any strategies specifically that are targeted toward the the internal game, our emotional landscape? I would say having boundaries is probably the most important thing because often when people give us work to do, there is the expectation that we have the time to do it. And because we are good employees and we don't want to rock the boat, we say, yes, of course I can take on that extra piece of work. When would you like it done by? And I think having mental boundaries around how do you accept new pieces of work when it's within your gift to be able to do that? Are you going to make the point about saying, well, I can do this, but it will mean I'll have to stop doing something else. I can do this, but not by tomorrow because I'm working on something else. I can get it to you by Friday. Is that okay? And having that sense of protecting your own time and your own mental health so that you're not saying, yes, I can do everything, of course, just lay it on me and then I'm just going to stay up to midnight and be at my keyboard all night. By being aware of what your own limitations are and what how many hours you've got available, what else you've got going on, planning out the next couple of weeks, you can start to think about, if I say yes to this, and I have to because my boss is asking, let's, let's be honest, you haven't really got a lot mm-hmm. of choice. How can I make this fit? What other help do I need? How can I have that conversation? And I tend to default to the, I can do this and this is when I can get it to you. Mm -hmm. There's another tool that I can share if if you'd like. Yes, please do. 
one of the things that has helped me has been the two week look ahead. So I will take a point in the week where I'll look at what's coming up in the next fortnight with the team to say, okay, what do we know about the next two weeks? Who's got holiday? When have we got big meetings that we need to prepare for? What deadlines do we have? And then nothing really surprises you. Or you've built in a little bit of time to be aware of the things that are coming up. So if you do get a surprise, it doesn't throw your whole schedule off because you've already built in some resilience for what you know is coming up. That's been really helpful for me because it also means that I can look ahead in terms of just how busy I'm going to be. So you talked about protecting yourself and and being mentally ready to be busy and juggle all these things. If I know I've got another week coming up in the future and it's very busy, lots of big meetings, high stress, I can prepare for that because I can make sure that I've got things for the children's lunchboxes in the freezer. I can make sure I've got childcare organised. I can make sure I'm not booking any late night social events for me that week. Or if I am, I'm planning the next morning so that that's easy. And so I'm trying to holistically look at what work is coming up and what that affects me, how that affects me personally, so that I can be more prepared to show up ready to work. Mm -hmm. That's lovely. Okay. Well, let's dig into your five key concepts. They each start with P, which is handy to remember. Portfolio, plan, people, productivity, positioning. We've already gotten a couple tidbits for each. Could you perhaps give us a quick definition or articulation of the concepts and then perhaps a top do and don't within each of the five? Okay. With portfolio, I talked about having full visibility of the work that you've got on the go at the moment and the things that you're responsible for. So my top tip for that is just to take an hour, perhaps even less, and just look through whatever note-taking tool you use or your notebook or the notes you've got on your phone and try and write down everything that you are currently working on, looking at how much time does that need to take per week. And I know working out hours is very difficult. So what you might want to do is just think it's a big thing, a medium thing, a small thing. That's good enough for this exercise. And then that's the portfolio piece done. It gives you a good sense of what's going on. The thing not to do is to keep that information to yourself. Use that as a talking point tool with your manager and with your team to say, look, all these things I've got on the go. Can you help me prioritize so that I'm focusing more of my time on the things that really matter to the organization? The plan step is about scheduling, working out when you're available to do things. And the tip I have for that is to look at all the different projects you're working on and then look at where they've got their their big milestones. When are they going live or when do you have a big meeting about them? And then plot those on. Again, I did it on a spreadsheet because then you can start to see, oh, project number one and project number four have very similar schedules. Maybe we could work on them together and Maybe there's some benefit in looking at how we can streamline and combine the work, if it makes sense to do so, so that we're not doing everything twice. With that, you are going to need help from other people. So again, the tip not to do is to try and do that alone. Other people will have a different insight about what's important and what's coming up on a project schedule. So it's worth involving the rest of the team in your planning. Mm -hmm. The people element of the model is all around working with others as you'd guess from the name. And that is to do with thinking through how you use other people's time. So my suggestion there, if I had to give you one thing, would be to look at where you can combine meetings. And I can tell you about a time I did not do this. I went along to a meeting with 
my project sponsor, my main manager I was working with on that piece of work. And I was all ready to talk about one project. But he was also involved in another project and he asked me questions about that one. And I wasn't ready to talk about that. I didn't have any of my notes. So I waffled, made it up as I went along (laughs) and got through it. But it made me think, actually, other people are working on multiple things too. And to them, they might have multiple things they want to ask you about. So let's try and combine the communication so that we're only contacting people once rather than contacting them multiple times about each different thing that you're involved with, because then you can help them manage their time as well. Mm -hmm. With productivity, which is the fourth P, it's really around managing your own time, thinking through what works for you, what productivity tools and techniques you want to use and how you can help other people in your team be productive as well. The thing not to do with that is to get sucked into the latest shiny tool or what's working for your colleagues. Because in my experience, everybody has quite different ways of working to the best of their ability. For me, I'm very much a pen and paper person. I do use electronic tools for project scheduling and task management and all that, but I always have pen and paper as well. Whereas I know people who would never write anything down. So you need to find out what works best for you and then use that in the way that you work. Mm-hmm. Positioning is the last P. It's also the one that's the most convoluted because I kind of had to find a P that fitted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's more around how do you set yourself up for success? So what does the environment look like? So this is all of our checklists and templates and processes. And what can you change in your environment to make life easier for future you? So one very simple thing to do would be to think through, what do I do on a regular basis? How much time do I have to spend thinking about that? Would it be easier if I just had a checklist or a work instruction or something like that? Then if I'm not here, someone else can do it. But equally, when I need to do it, I can make sure I just whiz through it and don't have to worry about any of those steps. And it's often, I wonder if this is partly me getting older, but I used to be able to hold all those things in my head. Now I'm, I struggle more to think about the different steps involved in, in every process and making sure that nothing gets forgotten. So anything that can be written down and templated just saves you time in the future. Uh And when it comes to the holding in the head, I've really noticed that it's a little bit of a stressor in terms of, I guess, maybe the psychologists would call it our working memory capacity. That might not be the right construct, but something like that (laughs) in terms of there's so many things we can put there. And then when we try to push it for more, I actually feel stress signals popping up. And so what what I find interesting is if there is a task that is already somewhat stressful or I'd be prone to procrastinate on because I'm worried I might screw something up or overlook something, make a mistake, or it's just unpleasant for any number of reasons, having that checklist in place is very satisfying because it's like I can free up all the potential stress associated with thinking and remembering the steps because they're just there. And I can feel a little bit of fun momentum associated with, okay, I checked this piece of the checklist. It only took 30 seconds, but I did it. And it's and it's checked. And now momentum is there visibly on the page before my eyes. Exactly. Who doesn't love ticking a box on a spreadsheet, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Say it's done. Cross off that task on your to-do list. Project managers love that kind of stuff. And it's it's exactly true. It's And it gives you a better quality result because you're not going to forget things. You're going to go through a set of steps. And honestly, the first time I did it, my checklist was a bit rubbish. And as I went through the actual task, I went, oh, I have to do that as well. 
oh, I've forgotten to involve that person. Yeah. So you just add it on and then it becomes checklist version two and you keep improving and iterating as you go. But next time you have to do that, you don't have to think so hard. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Okay. Well, now just a couple of follow-up questions across some of these five Ps. I've had the experience and apparently there are some psychological truths or principles that suggest that we humans have a real hard time, in fact, estimating how long something's going to take. Is that your experience and what can be done about this challenge? Yes, that's very much my experience. It's really hard to estimate. And a lot of what we do is knowledge work where we're thinking of things or changing something. And we probably haven't done that before. So you don't even have past projects where you can go back and say, when we did it the last time, it took us this long. So therefore we can just use those estimates. Sometimes that's because organisations don't really capture the data in a format we can go back and use again. But also it's because people suffer from optimism bias. And when we think, oh yeah, we can do that in four hours. Meanwhile, forgetting about the fact that we all need toilet breaks in the day and to take calls and to check our emails and to turn up and do other things. So my suggestion for people who are struggling with estimating is to think about how many hours you've got in the day and then to schedule yourself and other people in your team or have conversations with other people about what's realistic for them to do. But only think of yourself as available 80% of your time because that then gives you time for those team meetings, the mandatory training we talked about earlier and taking phone calls on things that are completely unrelated but still relevant to your job. And then you've got a bit of a buffer in your day. The other big challenge with estimating is that people often approach estimating thinking that they're only doing this one thing. Whereas in real life, we're probably juggling multiple different strands of activity or many projects and switching between projects also costs us some time. So time blocking has has helped me blocking out some time, a few hours to work on a particular thing or an afternoon to do a particular type of task and talking to our colleagues about best ways to get things done, what productivity techniques work for them, how do they organise their time, when have they got holidays coming up that they might need to do more things beforehand to hand over and that might make them less available for your project because they're supporting something else. It's just a lot about about talking and adding contingency as well. Do you think that would be useful? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Yeah. Contingency is a buffer time. People often ask me, but how much contingency should I add to this estimate or I think this task is going to take five days, but what's reasonable contingency? And contingency should be something that's based on uncertainty. So if you're not really sure and you're just guessing, you want to slap on a bit of extra time, quite a lot probably, if you just don't have the information to make an accurate guess at the moment. But if you've, you've done the work before or you're quite confident in how, how long things are going to take, you could probably get away with adding a lot less extra time. Mm-hmm. I hear you. That makes sense in, in terms of the variable driving whether you want to add more or less contingency is uncertainty because Mm. we just don't know. So let's, let's play it safe by having some more in a high uncertainty zone. Mm. So let's say that the uncertainty is small. You've done it before, but it's a little different. Do you have a a go-to percentage that you utilize? I like 10%. All right. I would add 10% (laughs) extra on. There are lots of estimating models. So if your organisation is quite mature in the way that they approach time tracking and estimating, then there's a lot better ways to do it (laughs) than just to add on 10%. But if you are just working on something yourself without an awful lot of other guidance from a project management office or anything like that, then give yourself a bit of a buffer. 
and 10% seems to cover most scenarios. Okay. And when it comes to the people side of things, when you're in the tricky position of, of having to lead without the authority, like you own the project, but you don't own the employees who have to do the stuff to make that proceed. It can be a tricky spot to be in. Do you have any top tips beyond being considerate and leveraging their time of being extra influential, persuasive to have people to say yes and in fact follow through with their stuff? In my experience, I think it helps to invite people to participate and explain the reasons behind why their participation is valuable. People like to do things because there's a reason behind it, not just because they've been asked. So the great thing about projects is that often there's a change or a benefit that's coming at the end of the work. I mean, sometimes projects have bad outcomes, like we're closing down an office or mm. making a whole department redundant or something like that. But often we're trying to do something that will be beneficial for the organisation and bring about something that's good. So if you can tie their contribution into the vision or the, the bigger picture of why we're doing the work in the first place, they can draw those lines and make the connection between how their contribution matters. That can be quite a powerful way of, of helping people to feel motivated about doing the work in the first place. The other thing that works is allowing them to set their own deadlines. So if you go to somebody and say, I need this by Tuesday, their instant reaction might be, oh, I can't do that. I, you can't tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can say, we need this piece of work done and your boss has suggested that you're the right person to do it, how much time do you think this might take? Obviously, this is not a conversation you'd have in three sentences, but you'd sit with them and explain what the requirements are and help them see the bigger picture of the project as well. Mm -hmm. And people can then say, well, if I need to involve this person and do this and work with that, then I think I could probably get that done by a week on Tuesday. And that's the date that goes in your project plan. One of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're trying to do projects is they make up all the deadlines themselves. In fact, I've sat in a room with senior managers and they've drawn out a project plan on a whiteboard and said, right, that's what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And I've thought, but none of the people who are actually doing the doing are in the room. Yeah. You don't know what it takes. <laughs> I mean, you, you just don't know. Why are you making this stuff up? Yeah. <laughs> and then, of course... You just cause delays later because you've set expectations that are unmanageable. So using other people's expertise and tapping into what they know and trusting them to suggest the right timeframes can, can help. And I feel I've gone off the question now. So oh, well, no, I, well, <laughs> did it, I answer it, the well, question? It's all juicy stuff in terms of, you know, you, you cast the vision for, okay, this is how things could be better when, when the project's done and, and how you're contributing to that. But the, the deadline setting stuff I think is, is handy in terms of thinking like there might be a date by which it's extra valuable to have this done, like before the trade show or the big meeting or the big conference. Mm -hmm. So that's, I guess, what it would be nice <laughs> to, to have it done. An executive can yes. determine that. And however, I'm thinking about, this is maybe the first project management lesson I learned. I thought it was really useful. The Was it the triangle? The project, you can probably describe it better, Elizabeth, than I can. The time, cost and quality. What's the time management or the project management triangle? We talk about the iron triangle, the triangle of constraints mm -hmm. of balancing time, cost and quality. Although the thought process behind that's moved on a bit. Okay. Now. We, See, we don't just <laughs> use time, cost and quality as a measure of success. But in terms of talking to your stakeholders, your colleagues and your project sponsor and your boss, it is really helpful because you can say, well, I can deliver to this level of quality. And it will cost this much and take this long. And then they could say, 
but I want it faster. I can't spend that much money. I want it cheaper. And then you can adjust the corners of the triangle and say, well, if we want it cheaper, it will have to be less quality, or maybe it will take longer because we'll use cheaper resources to do it. Or if you want it to take less time, it'll probably cost more because we'll throw more resources at it. We might be able to maintain quality, but we might have to take a few things out of the project scope and maybe add those in as a phase two later, but then we'll hit the deadline. So it's about balancing all these different success criteria. And that's a really helpful point that you've brought up there because you need to know what people feel is important. And maybe it's the deadline. Maybe it's do what you need to do, but get it done by the trade show. I work in healthcare and I was on a project once and people didn't really care about when it got done. Well, that's not true. Mm. They did care about when it got done. But what was most important was that when it was delivered, it was good quality. And if that took a couple of extra week, then a couple of extra weeks didn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. They just needed it to be good. So some people will say the date is important. Some people will say you've got a ceiling on this much money that you can spend or this quality criteria has to be met. Or it might be something like sustainability customer satisfaction or some other kind of measure that they think is important. And if you know that, then you can make all of your decisions based around how do we get to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that is powerful to see what is the priority there. And, and when you say quality, I think my, my own synonym for quality is how much good stuff. Because mm. it, it, it's almost two dimensions, like a scope thing in terms of how excellent is the thing and how many of the things are there. And like if we're doing a bunch of home renovations, it's like, okay, you want 30 updates across the kitchen and the bathrooms and whatever. And so that we can sort of do fewer of those updates or those updates could be chintzier mm-hmm. or you are going to have to have more people working on it, contractors, et cetera, or uh, which will come with the paying for it or we just take more time to do it. So I think that is, that's been handy for me as I, as I think through stuff and I get stressed out, like, uh oh, how on earth, (laughs) this feels bad to say, but I guess it's real and, and something has to give somewhere or else we will be those sad, burnt out, overwhelmed people Yes, is that usually what what I sacrifice is quality. It's like, all right, well, it's going to be worse, but because my quality expectations are usually so insane, we sent you a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) So so like, (laughs) I'm told that no one else does that. And I thought, oh, really? Uh, they probably should, but whatever. So I'm able to back it up. It's like, okay, well, we're just going to allow that. And it's good enough for 98% of the people who are encountering this thing that I'm making. And, and I'm just going to have to take a breath and live with it. And that's fine. And that's very much the case at work, isn't it? Mm-hmm. There are some things that you absolutely have to get perfect. And if you're a lawyer writing a contract, you can't just go, oh, well, it's 80% good enough. Yeah. Your client's not going to live with that. But if you're drafting a internal document just for review to brief your colleagues on something, if I prefer not to send out things with typos, but if something did slip through, no one's going to die. It will be fine. Yes. And if it means that you get it out the door at five o'clock and you go home on time and you have a life, instead of sitting there stressing about every full stop and staying at your keyboard till seven, because I guarantee that half the people who read that document won't even notice whether a full stop is there or not. I really like what you said there about no one's going to die. And and that is a perspective I've, I've come to again and again, because it's true. So there are some things in healthcare, in transportation, in military, police, and, and other fields where it truly is life and death. 
the quality of your work will make that impact. And many other times in the land of spreadsheets and, and memos, it's usually not. And so I find that quite comforting if I'm getting a little bit too worked up about something is to recall Mm -hmm. that no one will die no matter how horrible an episode we produce, Elizabeth, although you're doing great. So I would. (laughs) (laughs) So that's cool. Well, now tell me, Elizabeth, anything else you really want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Something that you can do to start managing your multiple projects more effectively is to think about how you can group them into different buckets. So if you do a couple of things for one client or you're leading on a couple of initiatives for one particular department, how can you bring those things together to streamline the communication, try and have meetings where you cover multiple things in one go instead of scheduling lots of meetings about the same thing? So looking for connections between the work you do can make it feel a lot less overwhelming. If you've got 15 things on the go, for example, that's 15 things you have to think about. But if you can put them into buckets and you've got five things in each bucket, then you've only got three things to think about. And it could be around the solution that you're building, the person you're doing it for, the type of technology that's in use, the date it's been got to be finished by. It could be anything. But if you can group the work I've found and people I work with have found that that's, it relieves some of the overload because it gives you a way to think about things at the next level up. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? The quote that I have on my wall is from Francine Jay and it says, my goal is no longer to get more done, but rather to have less to do. Mm-hmm. And a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I like the copy machine study by Ellen Langer, which is about providing a reason for why we want people to take action. Mm -hmm. When people know there's a reason, they're more likely to do the action that we want. And how about a favourite book? If I was on a desert island, I'd be taking Les Miserables. I really love that book by Victor Hugo. Mm -hmm. If I was choosing a business book, I'd choose Emotional Intelligence for Project Managers by Anthony Mercino, which really changed the way that I look at our profession. All right. And a favourite tool or something you use to be awesome at your job? I use a tool called Infinity for task management and a Maltron keyboard to help me type more easily. Okay. All right. That's cool. And a favorite habit, something you do to be awesome at your job. I do Pilates once a week. I think I need to have that time just to be focused on me. Mm-hmm. All right. And is there a key nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate with readers and listeners? And they say, yes, Elizabeth, you're so right when you said this. Maybe communicate more than you think you have to. Mm-hmm. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? You can find me on LinkedIn and on all the normal social media channels. And you can find out more about project management at my blog, rebelsguidetopm.com. Mm-hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? I would say to remember that it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission. So if you want to just organize your work in a different way, just do it. Most managers want action and results and they don't really mind how you get there as long as you get there. Mm-hmm. All right, Elizabeth, thank you. This has been a treat. I wish you much luck with all your projects. Thank you for having me on the show. I really love Elizabeth's take on portfolio. It is so easy to get myopia, myopic. You look at just what must get done right away or the other stuff. It's just like, well, of course, that's just going to get done. It's sort of habituated. It's in your mind. It's in your groove. And that just happens. But when you take a step back and you write all the stuff down and how long things take, it's like, oh, wow. And it gets really clear on why there might be a lot of stress going on and makes for a much richer evidence-based 
fact-based conversation with manager others say, hey, this is all that's on my plate right now. What do we think might be able to be moved, shrunk, deprioritized, postponed, and what needs to be elevated? And, and it's a really good discussion. You've got all that portfolio right up there. And then you got four more peas to work with because Elizabeth brought the goods. Again, you check out those goods in visual form, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we referenced at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP831. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.